Welcome to Greatness, where the world's leading thinkers share their ideas about how to create greatness. Great leaders, great teams, and great organizations. Why be good when you can be great? This is Gretchen Gagel, and I'm so excited today to welcome Dr. Amanda Rishbeth to the podcast Greatness. Welcome, Amanda. Thanks, Gretchen. Great to be here. Yeah. So I had the amazing opportunity to meet Amanda a few months ago when I was in Adelaide. Recent, more recently, heard her speaking on the topic of business and health and society. And Amanda, you've worn so many different hats. You're an advisor. You're a board member. You're a visiting scientist at Harvard um, in public health. And so I think you just bring such a unique perspective to thinking about um, health and business. So I always like to start with, how did you get interested in your area of study? How did you get passionate about this? So my back, if I go back a bit, my, my background's intensive care work. And of course, I think these days everyone really understands a bit more about that uh, with the current COVID crisis. So I led an intensive care unit for 10 years. Then I sort of moved into some uh, a PhD studying critical systems and then research and then into more of a business career. During my career, I've really tried to understand the evidence and research and all of the health knowledge, and if you like. But then I've had a CEO role, business advisory roles, non-executive director roles. And so I also understand, well, what does business care about and what do business leaders want and need? And if you typically said to business, uh, you've got a really big role to play in health. They would typically go, well, no, we don't. There's lots of great people who work in health and lots of experts and it's not our job. You know, we, we run a company and uh, et cetera. But as we've seen played out currently, there's a real case for that, isn't there? So what we're finding is that health really needs to be a strategy, not a program relegated to Friday under Mary, et cetera. So this this balance of how can health be a strategic C-suite board level consideration for employees in our supply chains, in environment and across the community in which we operate. And if we do that well, we will make a very strong contribution to society and we will also get reputational benefit, productivity, all of the business upsides. Yeah, that's so fascinating. So where did your passion around health and, and business come from? I mean, what, what were some of the drivers in your life around that? The, the drivers in my life around that, uh, one of the key drivers actually was when I went to, in 2017, I had an opportunity to, to go to Harvard as one of 40 competitive selected fellows to do the advanced leadership uh, fellowship. So they take 40 leaders around the world, put them in Boston for a year and the idea being is that we've all come from different directions. We've all done quite a lot of leadership work. How can we come together and think more broadly about contribution to society? And so there was a number of, uh, obviously, programs and speakers and case studies, etc. But we were given a very big carte blanche to think big. So it sort of struck me there. That's where I sort of saw well, the work that was being done at the Harvard School of Public Health Harvard Business School work and then the broader community work, thinking, well, they really go together. They're not, they're not separate. And so what I, that drove my passion. I thought, well, health people, they don't understand business. 
And business people don't really understand health. So my passion came in this, well, I can be that sort of broker in the middle, if you like, going, no, actually, if you guys work together, you both get this really big win um, rather than being not really perhaps understanding the other's framing, if you like. And so that was the genesis of the genesis of it. Yeah, it's so interesting. So in the course I teach at the University of Denver on leadership and ethics, we talk about uh, corporate social responsibility. It's an MBA course and um, really trying to think deeply about what is the role of business in society and, you know, capitalism and free markets and I love having these really in-depth people just think, oh, business, it's a business, right? But there is a role that business, we are chartered to conduct uh, our business in the world in in a certain way. There are societal responsibilities um, that we have as a business. Talk to us a little bit about your thinking on that. So it is very interesting. So I'll, I'll talk a bit about corporate social responsibility in a minute, but to lead to the sort of summary piece around that, it's that business about the shareholder primacy versus the sort of stakeholder capitalism, isn't it? And we've seen that playing out with the, you know, business uh, roundtable statement last year saying actually business has and should have, 181 CEOs signed that statement, should have a responsibility broader than their business and their shareholders. Of course, the Milton Friedman view of the world back in the early 70s was no, it's all shareholder primacy. But we're really seeing that change. We're seeing it change because the investor market is driving that. Investors are starting to ask companies other questions that are sort of the non-financial questions uh, that is also driving investment, et cetera. So I'm very fortunate to work with Professor George Serafine and Dr. Howard Coe from Harvard. So Professor Serafine has done leading work linking uh, sustainability by business with profit, So showing the linkage, direct linkage between if you do that well, you can actually have a bottom line benefit rather than just typically thinking, well, I'm doing some good over here and that's terrific, but perhaps I'm going to take a hit over there. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of the shared value is, well, how do we do both? And there are many companies that are doing both. One example is if I go back and give an example of back in Hurricane Katrina, Walmart, before that, they didn't have a terrific reputation, seen as a very big sort of uh, monolithic uh, employer. But what they did during Katrina is they empowered all of their managers locally. This is such a big ticket um, critical issue. Go forth and do. Do whatever you need to do and we'll work it out later. Now, the outcome of all of that post-Katrina was enormously beneficial for Walmart. Their standings, their reputation, people wanted to work for them. That's just one example of where still selling product, still being big supermarkets, still being big, big, box, big box retailers, but delivering this incredible benefit for society during a, you know, a particular disaster and crisis. So mm-hmm. they're not a sort of opposite purpose. And if we talk about shared value, and this is obviously leveraging the great work by Mark Kramer and, and Michael Porter, what we're trying to do is create economic value in a way that creates value for society and also for business as well. Mm-hmm. And when that's done well, uh, you just get, you know, fantastic benefit. So mm-hmm. it might be productivity, secure supply, improved quality, and, of course, all the benefits for the workforce to say, I want to go and work in that company for that leader. 
It's interesting because for this course, I interviewed six CEOs in the US and Australia. One of the questions I asked them was about corporate social responsibility and did they feel like CEOs, C-suite leaders were really taking it seriously? And I, I really got a mixed response that for some, it's still just, oh, we're going to have a volunteer day and or are we really deeply going to think about this concept of shared value and what our role is in society? And I, I think that, you know, potentially one of the outcomes of this current situation is is maybe people will think more deeply about it. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I think absolutely. I think we're seeing that play out, aren't we? We're seeing we're seeing leaders step up. We're seeing companies uh, stand up and and make choices around their workers, not just the compliance things that they have to do, but going beyond that. And it's really about the sort of culture of caring, isn't it? The culture of caring and flourishing, and that's going to become really critical as we move out of COVID, notwithstanding the change in business models and remote working and all of those things. But I think mm-hmm. we'll also see a shift from corporate corporate social responsibility being seen, it's a cost centre, to your point. The cost centre, we've allocated some money and we're going to do some good things, but creating shared value is different. It's about what are the business opportunities that create new markets, improve profitability, strengthen our competitive positioning, but also deliver for society. And I'll give you one example, Gretchen. So if we look at the work of by Paul Coleman when he was CEO of Unilever. So Unilever has approximately 1.2 million applications to work there every year. And you think, gosh, that's they make soap and bleach and cleaning products. Why is it that so many people want to go and work there? And one of the answers lies in the, the way that they have established under his leadership, purpose-driven leadership. So one of the big initiatives they had in sustainability was to say, we're going to be responsible for hand-washing up to a billion people, educating them and, and improving the rates of dysentery, et cetera, in developing countries. Now, of course, that's linked to soap and cleaning products, so it's linked to their products, but they developed a huge program called the Life Boy Program which set out and developed enormous gains in those, in those countries. So people said, I want to work there. It wasn't that I want to go and work and sell soap and domestos and bleach, and et cetera. I want to work there because they stand for something that's broader and more important. So this idea of purpose-driven leadership and creating shared value, that's where I think the future workforce are going to want to, want to work. I would absolutely agree with that. So we started out earlier talking about health needs to be a strategic thread in your organization, whether you're thinking about your employees, your supply chain, et cetera. Um, Talk to us a little bit about that. What does that mean to put health as a a strategic um, thought process within your organization? So if we sort of think about it in a sort of four pillar uh, uh, approach a little bit, and we think with what regard do we consider health with our employees? Well, we obviously know work, health and safety. There's a whole bunch of things that we do already. But what else can we do to really consider the health and well-being of our workforce? And it's more than a healthy snack Friday and, you know, steps program. It's, it's more than that. It's a, it's a whole of uh, enterprise consideration about the health and well-being, and we're seeing that play out now, aren't we? So never before have mm-hmm. we had my personal health, my family's health and my workers' health critically important at the same time. So that's what's playing out with COVID. 
So then we say, okay, if we, we agree that health and well-being has to be such an important pillar, so we'll just park that for the moment. And then we, well, we know that in supply chains, you know, we'd pay a lot of regard, and rightly so, to labour practices in, in factories, to hiring practices, to avoiding discrimination, etc. So why don't we give a lens of health and well-being? What would happen if we asked our suppliers about what they do about the health and well-being of their workers? What if we use that as part of our procurement criteria in some way? So it's trying to change the paradigm of how we think about health and well-being a bit differently because that will have a greater good for all of society, just as the modern slavery, uh, anti-slavery work does, for example. So then we say, okay, well, what about the environment in which we operate? So that's the physical environment. Where do we put our people? What sort of facilities? what sort of physical environment, air quality, light space, etc. where do we put them? Because that has a health and well-being impact, which also has an impact on productivity. And then the fourth one is, to what regard do we consider health and well-being in the community more broadly? Where does our business operate? Is it in a city? Is it in a, across cities? Is it in, where is it? And so therefore, what lens do we care and have regard for the health of the community in which we operate? And there's work being done at Harvard Chan by Howard Coe and others around anchoring institutions where you have these sort of large institutions in certain cities that become anchors and by virtue of that deliver incredible sort of public health benefit because they're, you know, high employers uh, and they also have a sort of positive impact on that particular place. So those four pillars are really that culture of health piece strategically and if you think about that, if you do that well, talent management, productivity, reputational upside for the leader and CEO. So it, it, it absolutely sits as a strategy, but our typical framing is not that. Our typical framing is we're relegating it to a program on Friday. And I really believe it needs to be elevated uh, and, and become the hero of a company, not the uh, not a subset. I'm thinking of so many different examples, Amanda. One of my clients in the United States is a global manufacturing firm and and somebody suggested putting skylights into one of their new plants which they did and it quickly became their most productive plant now they're going and retrofitting skylights into all their plants what a novel idea people want to work in a in a place that makes them feel good i know and it's the same with air quality so professor joe allen at harvard has done an amazing work around healthy buildings um, and healthy places of work, and to go to that point, light, space, air quality, particularly air quality, and how that absolutely impacts on people, and therefore it impacts on productivity, and therefore it impacts on talent management. So, And therefore, mm-hmm. if people feel healthy and are healthy, when they go away from their environment back into their, their lives, uh, that has a public health contribution. And one of the things that COVID has done is it has raised the awareness of what is public health. I think the whole world now knows what is public health. Well, public health is the health of us all and how, what are the independencies of that? And we're seeing that now, aren't we? So the good that's come out of that is that people go, okay, I really get this health stuff now. I actually really get how important it is. And I'm really hoping that one of the benefits of this will be, and I'm helping some companies do this, build health and well-being into their strategy, build flourishing into their strategy uh, you know, to lead themselves for the long term. I think it's interesting to think about how we influence our supply chain as well. And another example popped into my head 
um, having spent so much time doing strategic work in, in the construction industry, there was a point decades ago where several large corporations um, in oil and gas and other industries just kind of got fed up with the safety challenges of the industry. You know, why are we killing so many people in construction? And they really rallied. The Construction Industry Institute at the University of Texas was uh, one of the kind of, they're a member organization and, and many of their members came together and just said, we're fed up. We're, we, we have to do something dramatically different in, with safety. If you don't have a safety record of this, you're not going to be able to, you know, bid our jobs, et cetera. And so we do have influence in community. We think about this word community quite a bit at Conversant. Um, we do have an ability to influence even beyond thinking of our own employees. Absolutely. And what we're also seeing is investors are driving that change too, Gretchen. So the investor um, markets are now, because they're asking different questions, what are you doing about these non-financial metrics? And we know there's lots of work around ESG, environmental, social governance. We know there's complexity around that and there's confusion around scorecards, et cetera. But the principle is, what are you doing beyond your core you know, fi financial work? And it's those non-financial markets of which health and wellbeing is, is a key one. And to your point, absolutely safety is, is a pillar in there. But not only that, that is driving investors to say, well, and particularly younger investors to say, I want to invest in these sort of ethical investments, if you like, and asking different mm -hmm. questions about, how do you treat your people? How do you take that into the supply chain? How do you consider your supply chain in terms of um, not just cost and price, uh, but about behaviour? And, you know, we see that play out in fashion industry and labour practices, and et cetera, but there's a bigger role for the health and wellbeing. And if you, if you then sort of, as I said before, drive it into procurement practices, then people sit up straight because they're going to either win the job or not win the job. Because, hang on, hang on right. a sec, I didn't realise you were taking that into account. Well, okay, well, perhaps I have to, you know, think about that more differently. So the investor shift, um, we're seeing that. George Serafine's work has done a huge amount in that space around where the investors are going with those questions to society more broadly. And he talks a lot about reimagining re capitalism, which is all about driving this stakeholder capitalism and the, the greater good and the long-termism for companies. So those companies that do this well will be the long-term high-performing companies as opposed to perhaps more incentivized short-term goals. Yeah, it's great to see so many light bulbs going off. Um, I've never, I don't think I've ever experienced so many global leaders talking about the mental well-being of their employees as mm. I have in the last um, few weeks. And so I'm a CEO out there and you know, bells are going off that maybe we need to elevate our attention to this thinking. What, where do I start? It's huge, isn't it, Gretchen? You're absolutely right. So, so the positive is the awareness is massive. The complexity and the enormity of, of information is, is often a barrier. So people say, where do I start? So I like to talk about credibility of source. So when we're trying to wade through information, where do we go to find out who knows that stuff? Who's the leaders? Who are the experts? Who can tell us? Often we can go to places that do leading work sort of nationally. And a lot of the NGOs, you know, collate and curate the leading work in the mental health space. So in Australia, for example, Beyond Blue, absolute experts in a lot of that work. 
And then there's, I know that when COVID happened, the federal government have put some very good links to resources on their website that help people navigate Headspace and others help people navigate where to go. So I think that one answer to your question is finding the credibility of source of information to go and look. I think the mental health term is is a worry a bit for me personally. I think I like to think about brain health. So because brain health, brain health mm-hmm. is really about how we, the health of our bodies is physical health, but our brain, how do we keep our brains healthy and active and supported? So what is it that we can do to support our brain health? And again, that's a mm-hmm. shift in framework, isn't it? Because we we just hear mental health, mental health, mental health. But it conjures up some ambiguity and also some myths that aren't correct. Notwithstanding all of that, it's really about our people. And if you go back to we want to have a culture of caring, we want to have a culture of health and well-being as a business leadership imperative. And the culture of health program, you know, when I finished my advanced leadership fellowship in 2017, Professor Howard Coe invited me back as a visiting scientist because I was very intrigued about this nexus between health and business. But it comes down to people want to be known that you care about them, you care about their families, and that you have resources in place and processes in place where they can foster, learn, grow, and then be supported when you know, things perhaps go pear-shaped. So it's a combination of sourcing the right information and the combination of providing resources and supports for staff so they can go find it as well. You don't have to put it all on a platter, but it's very helpful if you can provide information that they can help navigate that and you can understand the critical parts that contribute to that. And you look out for people, like programs like Are You Okay? You know, understanding. The other one is resilience, of course. So, you know, I work on the board of Camp Quality. We have a big program called the Oranges Toolkit. It's fantastic about resilience. And it was a program developed for volunteers working with children with cancer. How do we, how do we help support them? Because it's a really, you know, it's confronting and it's a challenging environment. So this resilience program was adapted, for, built for them. And now it's become this very large social enterprise where all the funds go back to Camp Quality. But the purpose is building resilience uh, in the workplace, which is part of that mental health or brain health support. So it's a combination of things, I think. Yeah, I love the term brain health. And I'm, I'm reminded I had a very large client who was putting an initiative in around lean practices and they wanted me to talk to them about it. And I said, well, what's your budget to do this? And they said, you're looking at him, one person. And so we kind of started from a space of the agility study that I did in my PhD. We under-resourced testing things all the time. And so we don't really know if they worked or didn't because we don't put enough resources to them. And so that's one thing that I've seen is, you know, you have to put your money where your mouth is as a leader. You you have to say, okay, this is important to us and this is the line item for this. Um, Yes, yes. I think you're absolutely right, Gretchen, but I also think it's got to be a line item, but it's sort of got to go across, doesn't it? Because if it sits off mm-hmm. a line and a column in a way, um, it can be marginalised off to the side and that's the, it's like the risk work that Johnny does. You know, people think, oh, that's yeah. Johnny, he does risk. We don't do risk. I mean, in fact, risk is everywhere across the organisation. So it's trying to have that reframing where, just as we run every single thing we do in a company, we run a lens of cost, don't we? We run the lens of cost, how much mm-hmm. will the cost? 
what if we run the lens of health and well-being? What will this do to our health and well-being? What will this do to our perception by others of, of the way we practice and conduct ourselves? What's our moral compass in all of this? So if, if we start to apply these lenses across, which means it's that point about strategy, then people can think of it in a different way rather than a silo of, oh, there's the health and well-being person who's point FTE of X. I'm going back to my days in manufacturing in the 80s, way to date myself, when TQM, total quality management and Deming and everything, yep. and, and that, that was the mistake people made. They made a quality department and somehow quality, the quality department is in charge of quality. And it's like, no, the people that are actually making this product are the ones in charge of quality. Absolutely right. And that happened for me. That was my intensive care world, you know, probably the same, the same era, Gretchen, I think, of those same years where we had TQM as well all across quality and uh, intensive care and, and hospital systems. And you're right. It's, it was sort of siloed off to the TQM people, but it, quality is what does everybody do and how do you create systems where you encourage people to re- report near misses and report hazards and report transparent reporting without being penalised and all of that builds that, again, a health and well-being culture, both of your yeah. your people and your product and services, and in our case, the patients. Yeah, so fascinating. Um, Amanda, I could really speak with you for hours about this topic. Um, any closing ideas, um, closing thoughts for those listeners out there that this is really piquing their interest? They've been, obviously, well-being is, is front of mind for people right now. In any closing thoughts for those people out there that, that really want to go on this journey? My main closing thought would be think of the, of the world that you're in currently. I mean, every single person in the world has been embedded by this COVID or been impacted, if you like, around this world of COVID. So how does that make us feel? And we're all, you know, worried, concerned, some more closer than others, depends on how close we might be to potentially being infected, et cetera. What that's made us feel is how we should take ourselves into the future. So we should take that feeling of the importance of health and well-being into everything we do. And it's, it doesn't have to always be a cost, but it needs to be a mindset. That would be my sort of closing thing. It's not necessarily a cost, but it absolutely needs to be a mindset in how we conduct ourselves, how we treat our people, what we're known for, what we stand for, what we will be known for going forward out of this uh, and our path to the future, I really believe we need to have that as a mindset. And that will deliver for society. It will deliver for us. The talent coming through will want to come and work there and our families and, and, and broader society. So it's, it's really the, uh, uh, the shift of mindset, I think. Amanda, you're brilliant. I'm so grateful. Uh, I've met so many wonderful people since moving to Australia. And I'm, th- I'm so thankful that there's people like you out there thinking about this and um, that our clients are bringing this front of mind. Um, so thank you so much for sharing your thoughts today. Thanks very much, Gretchen. Thank you very much for having me and um, the opportunity to, to share some of these thoughts more broadly and uh, welcome to help any others who need more help outside. Interested in hearing more? Visit us at greatnessconsulting.com. Thank you.